Section 13 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. The red morning dawn had begun to tinge the sky as we stood before the walls of Jerusalem, and with it the most beauteous morning of my life dawned upon me. I was so lost in reflection and in thankful emotion that I saw and heard nothing of what was passing around me. And yet I should find it impossible to describe what I thought, what I felt. My emotion was deep and powerful. Expression of it would be poor and cold. At half-past four o'clock in the morning of the twenty-ninth of May we arrived at the Bethlehem Gate. We were obliged to wait half an hour before this gate was opened, then we rode through the still silent and deserted streets of the Nua Casa Pilgrim House, a building devoted by the Franciscan friars to the reception of rich and poor Roman Catholics and Protestants. I left my baggage in the room allotted to me, and hastened into the church, to lighten the weight on my heart by fervent prayer. The entrance into the church looks like the door of a private house. The building is small, but still sufficiently large for the Roman Catholic congregation. The altar is richly furnished, and the organ is a very bad one. The male and female portions of the congregation are separated from each other, the young as well as the old, and all sit or kneel on the ground. Chairs there are none in this church. The costume of the Christians is precisely the same as that of the Syrians. The women wear boots of yellow morocco, and over these slippers, which they take off on entering the church. In the street their faces are completely in the church only partially muffled, and the faces of the girls not at all. Their dress consists of a white linen gown and a large shawl of the same material, which completely envelops them. They were all cleanly and neatly dressed. The amount of devotion manifested by these people is very small. The most trifling circumstances suffices to distract their attention. For instance, my appearance seemed to create quite a sensation among them, and they made their remarks upon me to one another so openly, both by words and gestures, that I found it quite impossible to give my mind to seriousness and devotion. Some of them pushed purposefully against me, and put out their hands to grasp my bonnet, etc. They conversed together a good deal, and prayed very little. The children behaved no better. These little people ate their breakfast while the service was going on, and occasionally jostled each other, probably to keep themselves awake. The good people here must fancy they are doing a meritorious work by passing two or three hours in the church. No one seems to care how this time is spent, or they would assuredly have been taught better. I had been in the church rather more than an hour when a clergyman stepped up to me and accosted me in my native language. He was a German, and in fact an Austrian. He promised to visit me in the course of a few hours. I returned to the Nuova Casa, and now, for the first time, had leisure to examine my apartment. The arrangement was simple in the extreme. An iron bedstead, with a mattress, coverlet, and bolster, a very dingy table with two chairs, a small bench, and a cupboard, all of deal, composed the whole furniture. These chattels, and also the windows, some panes of which were broken, may once in very ancient times have been clean. The walls were of plaster, and the floor was paved with large slabs of stone. Chimneys are no more to be found in this country. I did not see any until my return to Sicily. 
I now laid myself down for a couple of hours to get a little rest, for during my journey hither from Constantinople I had scarcely slept at all. At eleven o'clock the German priest, Father Paul, visited me in order to explain the domestic arrangements to me. Dinner is eaten at twelve o'clock, and supper at seven. At breakfast we get coffee without sugar or milk. For dinner, mutton broth, a piece of roast kid, pastry prepared with oil or a dish of cucumbers, and, as a concluding course, roast or spice mutton. Twice in the week, namely on Fridays and Saturdays, we have fast-day fare. But if the feast of a particular saint falls during the week, a thing that frequently occurs, we hold three fast-days, the one of the saint's day being kept as a time of abstinence. The fare on fast-days consists of a dish of lentils, an omelette, and two dishes of salt fish, one hot and the other cold. Bread and wine, as also these provisions, are doled out in sufficient quantities. But everything is very indifferently cooked, and it takes a long time for a stranger to accustom himself to the ever-recurring dishes of mutton. In Syria oxen and calves are not killed during the summer season, so that from the 19th of May until my journey to Egypt, in the beginning of September, I could get neither beef soup nor beef. In this convent no charge is made either for board or lodging, and every visitor may stay there for a whole month. At most it is customary to give a voluntary subscription towards the masses, but no one asks if a traveller has given much, little, or nothing at all, or whether he is a Roman Catholic, a Protestant, or a votary of any other religion. In this respect the Franciscan order is much to be commended. The priests are mostly Spaniards and Italians. Very few of them belong to other nations." Father Paul was kind enough to offer his services as my guide, and to-day I visited several of the holy places in company with him. We began on the Via Dolorosa, the road which our Lord is said to have trodden when, for the last time, he wandered as God-man on earth, bowed down by the weight of the cross, on his way to Golgotha. The spots where Christ sank exhausted are marked by fragments of the pillars which St. Helena caused to be attached to the houses on either side of the way. Further on we reach the Zwargasse, the place whither the Virgin Mary is said to have come in haste to see her beloved son for the last time. Next we visit Pilate's house, which is partly a ruin, the remaining portion serving as a barrack for Turkish shoulders. I was shown the spot where the holy stairs stood, up which our Lord is said to have walked. On my return I saw these stairs in the church of San Giovanni di Laterani. They also pretend to show the place where the Saviour was brought out before the multitude by Pilate. A little distance off, in the midst of a dark vault, they show the traveller the stone to which Jesus was bound when they scourged him. We ascended the highest terrace of this house, as this spot affords the best view of the magnificent mosque of Omar, standing in a large courtyard. With this exterior view the traveller is fain to be content for the Turks here are much more fanatical than those in Constantinople and many other towns, so that an attempt to penetrate even into the courtyard would be unsuccessful. The intruder would run the risk of being assailed with a shower of stones. But in proportion as the Turks are strict in the observance of their own ceremonies and customs, so they respect the Christians who are religious and devotional. Every Christian can go with perfect impunity to pray at all the places which are sacred in his eyes, without fear of being taunted or annoyed by Turkish passers-by. On the contrary, the Mussulman steps respectively aside, 
for even he venerates the Saviour as a great prophet, and the Virgin as his mother. Not far from Pilate's house stands the building designated as that of Herod. It is, however, a complete ruin. The house of the rich man, at whose gate the beggar Lazarus lay, has shared the same fate, but from the ruins one may conclude how magnificent the buildings must originally have been. In the house of St. Veronica a stone is pointed out on which they show you a footprint of the Saviour. In another house two footprints of the Virgin Mary are exhibited. Father Paul also drew my attention to the houses which stood on the spot where Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were born. These houses are all inhabited by Turks, but any one may obtain admittance upon payment of a small fee. The following day I visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The way lies through several narrow and dirty streets. In the lanes near the church are booths, like those at Maria Zell in Steiermark, and many other places of pilgrimage, where they sell wreaths of roses, shells of mother-of-pearl, crucifixes, etc. The open space before the church is neat enough. Opposite lies the finest house in Jerusalem, its terraces gay with flowers. Visitors to this church will do wisely to provide themselves with a sufficient number of para, as they may expect to be surrounded by a goodly tribe of beggars. The church is always locked, the key is in the custody of some Turks, who open the sacred edifice when asked to do so. It is customary to give them three or four piastres for their pains, with which sum they are satisfied, and remain at the entrance during the whole time the stranger is in the church. Reclining on divans, drinking coffee, and smoking tobacco. At the entrance to the church we noticed a long square stone on the ground. This is the stone of anointing. In the center of the nave a little chapel has been built. It is divided into two parts. In the first of these compartments is a stone slab encased in marble. This is vehemently asserted to be the identical stone on which the angel sat when he announced our Lord's resurrection to the women who came to embalm his body. In the second compartment, which is of the same size as the first, stands the sarcophagus or tomb of the Saviour of white marble. The approach is by such a low door that one has to stoop exceedingly in order to enter. The tomb occupies the whole length of the chapel and answers the purpose of an altar. We could not look into the sarcophagus. The illumination of this chapel is very grand, both by day and night. Forty-seven lamps are kept continually burning above the grave. The portion of the chapel containing the tomb is so small that when the priest reads Mass only two or three people have room to stand and listen. The chapel is entirely built of marble and belongs to the Roman Catholics, but the Greeks have the right of celebrating Mass alternatively with them. At the farther end of the chapel the copse have a little mean-looking altar of wood, surrounded by walls of lath. All round the chapel are niches belonging to the different religious sects. In this church I was also shown the subterranean niche in which Jesus is said to have been a prisoner, also the niche where the soldiers cast lots for our Saviour's garments, and the chapel containing the grave of St. Nicodemus. Not far from this chapel is the little Roman Catholic Church. A flight of twenty-seven steps leads downward to the chapel of St. Helena, where the holy woman sat continually and prayed, while she caused search to be made for the true cross. A few steps more lead us down to the spot where the cross was found. A marble slab points out the place. Mounting the steps once more, we come to the niche containing the pillar to which Jesus was bound when they crowned him with thorns.
It is called the pillar of scorn. The pillar at which Jesus was scourged, a piece of which is preserved in Rome, is also shown. The chapel belonging to the Greeks is very spacious, and may almost be termed a church within a church. It is beautifully decorated. It is very difficult to find the way in this church, which resembles a labyrinth. Now we are obliged to ascend a flight of stairs, now again to descend. The architect certainly deserves great praise for having managed so cleverly to unite all these holy places under one roof, and St. Helena has performed a most meritorious action in thus rescuing from oblivion the sacred sites in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. I was told that when the Greeks celebrate their Easter here, the ceremonies seldom conclude without much quarrelling and confusion. These irregularities are considerably increased when the Greek Easter happens to fall at the same time as that of the Roman Catholics. On these occasions there are not only numerous broken heads, but some of the combatants are even frequently carried away dead. The Turks generally find it necessary to interfere, to restore peace and order among the Christians. What opinion can these nations, whom we call infidels, have of us Christians, when they see with what hatred and virulence each sect of Christians pursues the other? When will this dishonorable bigotry cease? On the third day after my arrival at Jerusalem, a small caravan of six or seven travellers, two gentlemen, namely, and their attendants, applied for admittance at our convent. An arrival of this kind, particularly if the newcomers are Franks, is far too important to admit of our delaying the inquiry from what country the wanderers have arrived. How agreeably was I surprised when Father Paul came to me with the intelligence that these gentlemen were both Austrian subjects! What a singular coincidence! So far from my native country, I was thus suddenly placed in the midst of my own people. Father Paul was a native of Vienna, and the two counts, Berchthold and Salm Rafferscheidt, were Bohemian cavaliers. As soon as I had completely recovered from the fatigues of my journey, and had collected my thoughts, I passed a whole night in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. I confessed in the afternoon, and afterwards joined the procession, which at four o'clock visits all the places rendered sacred by our Saviour's passion. I carried a wax taper, the remains of which I afterwards took back with me into my native country, as a lasting memorial. This ceremony ended, the priests retired to their cells, and the few people who were present left the church. I alone stayed behind, as I intended to remain there all night. A solemn stillness reigned throughout the church, and now I was enabled to visit, uninterrupted and alone, all the sacred places, and to give myself wholly up to my meditations. Truly these were the most blissful hours of my life and he who has lived to enjoy such hours has lived long enough. A place near the organ was pointed out to me where I might enjoy a few hours of repose. An old Spanish woman, who lives like a nun, acts as guide to those who pass a night in the church. At midnight the different services began. The Greeks and Armenians beat a hammer upon pendant plates or rods of metal. The Roman Catholics play on the organ and sing and pray aloud, while the priests of other religions likewise sing and shout. A great and inharmonious din is thus caused. I must confess that this midnight mass did not produce upon me the effect I had anticipated. The constant noise and multifarious ceremonies are calculated rather to disconcert than to inspire the stranger. I much preferred the peace and repose that reigned around, 
after the service had concluded, to all the pomp and circumstance attending it. Accompanied by my Spanish guide, I ascended to the Roman Catholic's choir, where prayers were said aloud from midnight until one o'clock. At four o'clock in the morning I heard several masses and received the Eucharist. At eight o'clock the Turks opened the door at my request, and I went home. The few Roman Catholic priests who live in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stay there for three months at a time, to perform the services. During this time they are not allowed to quit the church or the convent for a single instant. After the three months have elapsed, they are relieved by other priests. End of section 13